0: And today we're going to be talking about using the power of persuasion for Christ's glory. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that's very brief. It's just a paragraph. We're going to pick up at verse 11, and then we're going to read down to verse 15. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 11. And here you're you're going to see the Apostle Paul talking about the opportunity that we're given to persuade, but there's a particular way that he would say that that is uh, something that we ought to do or something that we ought to consider. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 11, this is what it says. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised let's pray lord thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together this morning we're grateful for this passage of scripture where you inspired the apostle paul to write some very helpful things about the work that you do through your son the ways in which you invite us to carry ourselves in this world and the way your power gets demonstrated at work within us. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand what we're reading together. We pray that you'd help us to grow in our walk with you. We pray that you'd help us to make the most of the life that you've blessed us with. And we're just so thankful, Lord, for the privilege to be able to pause right now just to look at your word and think about who you are and all that you've accomplished on our behalf. So we commit this time to you now, Lord, and we pray that you'd speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've read through the book of 2 Corinthians or even 1 Corinthians, you could see that the Apostle Paul had strong feelings for the church at Corinth. I think that that was the case for each of the churches that he had the opportunity to to speak with and minister to and the churches that he planted and all of that. But when you look at 2 Corinthians, a lot of people describe this book as quite possibly the most emotional letter That the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. You have this church bringing Paul great joy. You also have uh, multiple examples when you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. You have multiple examples of the church breaking his heart. And so there was a very complicated relationship that I think Paul felt like he had with this church as he was seeing certainly glimmers of hope but then also certain things that he thought, you know, why is this still prevalent in your life? Why is this something that as a follower of Christ you still invite into your mindset and into your living? In the first letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, you have Paul addressing multiple issues that had cropped up in the church that were threatening things like their sense of unity and things that were in many respects, a failure on their part to model the gospel in their city. And by the way, wouldn't you consider it an important thing as followers of Christ that we represent Him well in our community? You know, that's something that that the Lord wants us to do. That's something that as our faith matures, we certainly develop a desire to do as well, that we would represent the Lord well right here where we're at and any place that He allows us to be. And Paul was concerned because in Corinth you have a whole bunch of people who are now professing faith in Jesus Christ but yet they're adopting a mindset and a manner of living that is just like what they've been rescued out of. It's like they're going right back to, the Lord, to what the Lord has rescued them out of and not seeing any problem with it. And so he challenges them on that, and it comes up over and over and over again as he speaks to them in both of these letters. And so in this letter, you have the Apostle Paul continuing to go to great lengths to encourage spiritual maturity among the church. And that's something that, for us living in our era as well, that's something that we certainly want to value also. Now, this morning, as we look at the portion of scripture that we just read, and we're going to revisit it a piece at a time here. We're going to be talking about how the Lord makes His appeal through us and how He also gives us the opportunity to live a very persuasive life for the glory of Jesus Christ. We could use the power of persuasion for Christ's glory, and there's multiple ways that that gets demonstrated from our lives and through our lives, and it begins with the fear of the Lord. I believe a persuasive life knows the fear of the Lord, and if you look again at verse 11, you have the Apostle Paul starting off this section of Scripture by emphasizing it. He says it this way. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So that's his opening sentence in the passage that we're looking at today. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And then he says, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also, or I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now, this probably doesn't make me the best comedian or the best husband in the world. But just the other day, I tried to spark a sense of fear in my wife's heart. Now, I'm looking at her. She's off in that corner over there, and she's like, what are you about to say? And by the way, this week, we, we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. So that's a long... And we dated for like three years before we got married. So that's a lot of her life. She's had to put up with stuff like this. And this week, we're going to be uh, doing a little travel and, and all that, celebrating our, our anniversary. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But the other day, I actually tried to spark a little sense of fear in my wife's heart. My son and I, maybe you saw this via Facebook if, if we're connected over there, but my son and I were attending a ministry conference in Maryland, and it's something I have to go to every year. And, um, and at, this, at this conference, there was an election that was held, to elect a new president to serve over this association of churches, the association we're part of, and it's a demanding job. It's something that tends to take a lot of toll on the pastors who serve in that role, as well as their families. It's, it's highly involved. There's a lot to it. And my wife was very, very curious about who was going to be elected as the new president, and she kept asking me about it. And one of the things that she was curious about was, you're, you're not going to run for this, are you? Like, you're not going to come home and then tell us that, like, you're, you're, you just got elected president, right? And so I was like, no, that's not what I'm going to do. And then she's looking at me. She's like, do you mean that? Like, you're not going to do that, right? And so she texted me a few times and wanted to know, hey, did they have the election yet? Who won? Who, who's the president? So my son Daniel was there with me, and I said, Daniel, do me a favor. After the sessions are done, let's go and take a seat up there at the table where they have the nameplates that say like president, vice president, stuff like that. I'm going to sit behind president there. You could sit behind vice president, and I'll have a friend take a picture, and I'm going to send it to your mother. That's how I'm going to answer her question. I'm just going to sit there, and uh, I didn't run for this, and I didn't win that or anything like that, but I wanted her to think that I did. And so I sat behind the presidential nameplate. Daniel sat behind the vice presidential nameplate. We sent it to her, and she looked at this, and I, I don't know if she believed it even for a second but eventually she replied, she's like, all right, no, tell me, who, who, really, who really is the next president of the association? And it was kind of fun. She quickly figured out it was a joke, but I tried to spark a little fear in her heart, and uh, somehow she found it funny, or at least pretended to. But when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when you look at verse 11, that verse that we began looking at in this particular passage, you have the, the Apostle Paul speaking about fear. But he's talking about a much deeper fear than a practical joke or something that startles us. Specifically here, you have Paul mentioning the fear of the Lord. Now, we talked about the fear of the Lord just a few weeks ago uh, as we were looking at a, a variety of passages of Scripture related to the wisdom of God. But here you have Paul specifically mentioning the fear of the Lord and expressing the fact that he knows or is well acquainted with that fear, so what he's talking about. Now, by the way, do you think the Apostle Paul was a man who had a, a mature faith? I, I certainly do. He's, he's certainly somebody who went through the ringer, and, and his faith developed over time. And as his faith matured, one of the ways he's describing his walk with the Lord is he's saying, I am highly familiar, I am highly acquainted with the fear of the Lord. So what's Paul talking about here? I don't know what you would want to characterize your relationship with God as looking like. You know, if someone said, hey, what's it like to to know the Lord? What's it like to walk with the Lord? Here, one of the ways Paul's characterizing his walk with God is he's saying, I am well acquainted with the fear of God. I know, you know, knowing the fear of the Lord is how he describes himself, right? But what's he talking about? Well, He's not encouraging us to be afraid of God in the sense that that so many people probably would look at that statement and, and think maybe that's what he's talking about. There's a more precise meaning to what Paul's speaking about here when he talks about this idea of knowing the fear of the Lord. The concept that he's talking about here is synonymous with this idea of having a very healthy reverence or respect for God. That's what he's talking about a reverence or a respect for God, knowing that God is perfectly holy, knowing that God is all-powerful, having a healthy reverence and respect for the Lord, so much so that it changes the way you live. Some years ago, this was about, oh, it was a couple decades ago, I had the opportunity to, to meet one of the vice presidents of the United States. And I had the opportunity, um, you know, I was at an event, and there he was, and he walked by. And he reached to shake my hand. And so I reached, in case you're wondering who, it was Dick Cheney. Someone's going to ask me afterward. I had the chance to meet Dick Cheney. So Dick Cheney comes over, and uh, he reaches out to shake my hand, and I I shook his hand and and, uh, said hello. And uh, I'll tell you what I noticed all around the vice president. Secret service agents. And you know where they're not looking? They're not looking at him. They're looking at everything around him, everything around him. And I was very mindful of the fact that they were staring at me as I shook his hand, and I thought, okay, I need to even be intentional about how I shake this hand so I don't look suspicious in how I'm doing this, because they're all looking all around And I remember in that moment thinking, okay, like I wasn't fearful in any way that that the vice president was going to do something harmful to me or anything like that, but in his position and with his authority, it was my job to show respect. It was my job to understand the nature of his role. And so you would look at that and you would say, all right, well, I had a certain fear of acting out of line. I certainly didn't want to act out of line because there would be consequences uh, and now I'm not afraid I wasn't afraid of the Vice President. I 'm not afraid of the Vice President now, but the idea is operating with reverence or respect towards someone with great authority. and that 's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here when he talks about the fear of the Lord. he 's saying, "Do you revere the Lord? Do you respect the Lord? Does that impact the ways in which you go about your life? God is worthy of our reverence. God is worthy of our respect. The way you and I conduct ourselves in this world will reflect the depth of our respect for him. If I tell you with my lips that I respect and I revere our Lord, but you see no change in my lifestyle whatsoever, you have no reason to believe that what I've just told you is true. But if I've told you I I revere and I respect the Lord, and then my life comes in line with what it looks like to revere and respect the Lord, then by all means believe what I'm saying. And here Paul speaks about knowing the fear of God or having a deep reverence or respect for Him. and that's a very healthy thing for us to have uh, in our lives as well, to live with that kind of mindset. because practically speaking, you can tell a lot about whether or not someone has a healthy reverence for the Lord by the manner in which they choose to live. And we looked at this scripture not long ago, but I want to point it out again, because the scripture tells us in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So there are many people who go through life not really, re, you know, revering the Lord or respecting the Lord, and then they wonder why they go through life confused about their sense of purpose, or they wonder why they go through life not really feeling like they have any sort of deep understanding about God's plan for their life. And I don't think, we, I don't think you or I could understand... God's will for our life, His plan for us, His intentions, if we don't actually begin with revering and respecting Him in the first place. And so in Proverbs 9, you have Solomon saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I want to be a man of wisdom, it's going to start with reverence toward the Lord. If you want to be a man or a woman of wisdom, it's going to start with reverence toward the Lord. And here you have the Apostle Paul trying to convey wisdom to the church at Corinth. But he's saying, listen, if you're going to understand things from the heavenly perspective instead of adopting a mindset of earthly wisdom, understand that it begins with the fear of the Lord. Now, I have to tell you, it's one of my primary life priorities to encourage others to trust in Jesus Christ and to follow him. It's one of the main things that I believe the Lord's called me to use my life to do. So every Sunday, I stand up in front of our church and I, I stand in this pulpit and I try and persuade people to give their life over to Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ. I write books about this. I record podcasts about this. I post on social media with regularity, with the ultimate aim of hoping that I'm pointing people to Jesus Christ. And maybe you do some of the same things. Maybe you do even more But how persuasive could any of us be as a messenger of God, if we're trying to be a messenger of God in the context that he's placed us in, how persuasive could we be as that messenger if we didn't personally fear the Lord? You know, what about my life or your life would persuade anybody else to follow Christ if that wasn't the dominant pattern of us, the messengers? And Paul wanted the Corinthians and all people to know and love Christ deeply, but he also knew that Christ's ambassadors— So in this context, the Corinthians living in that culture, that they needed to carry themselves in such a way that the fear of the Lord was a dominant motivation behind their perspective and behind their actions, and many of them were living as if they had no reverence or no respect for the Lord. And so Paul looked at this, and he was saying, listen, this has to change. If this doesn't change in your life, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to fall into all sorts of silliness that your culture is preaching to you at this time, and it's no different than, than the generation in which we live in right now. There is a message that's trying to permeate your mind and your, your brain, and this culture is, is trying to send those things in your direction and in my direction. And it can be very easy to adopt that kind of mindset. And what Paul is saying, you know what, if your life is going to be characterized by something, let it begin with the fear of the Lord. Revere and respect God. And the benefit is ultimately going to be that you'll receive the wisdom of God as he supplies it to those who trust him. To those who revere him, to those who respect him, and then you'll see things unlike most of this world can see. Something else that Paul brings up when you look back at 2 Corinthians 5, when you look at verses 12 through 13, he also makes a point when he talks about this idea of our lives being persuasive, he illustrates here the fact that a a, a persuasive life doesn't boast in outward appearances. The way he says it in verse 12 and then verse 13, he says, we are not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are are in our right mind, it is for you. If we are in our right mind. Does anyone feel like maybe you're not in your right mind sometimes? Anyone ever called you you crazy? Can I confess to you that I went through a season in my mid-teens when I was trying to figure out who I was, and and what I was all about, that I actually wanted people to think of me as crazy. Not crazy in the insane kind of way, but crazy in the sense that I wanted all my friends to think, you know what, if something was going to take place outside the norm, I wanted to be right in the center of it. If there was gonna be a dare of any kind, I wanted to be the one carrying it out. I wanted people to have this mindset that, you know what, if someone's gonna do something nuts, or funny, or entertaining, I wanted them to think it was going to be me, and I remember at one point I got this idea. I hope the statute of limitations on this is over, because if not, I'm going to be in trouble with an English teacher, but I remember at one point there was this guy, he had his locker right next to mine, and uh, he was a friend of mine, but I also felt the need to kind of bust his chops a little bit, and I, I got this idea to, 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 to basically make something happen to his locker. And so I took all his possessions out of the locker, all his books out of his locker, and I took two large boxes of baking soda and I dumped it into the bottom of the locker. And then remember how soda bottles, the two liters, used to have the plastic cap on the bottom of it? You remember that? Like They took that away years ago, but it was like a decorative plastic cap that was meant to make the bottle look bigger. Well, I ran a wire through that, so it didn't pierce the actual bottle itself, just that that lower cap, and I ran that through an opening, a vent opening at the top, and then I filled it with vinegar, and then I leaned the bottle on the front of the door, and so the next morning when he opened it, it swung down and then just started glugging the vinegar all over the baking soda and then foamed out into the hallway. Now, I didn't get to see that with my own eyes because he got to school before I did, but the second I walked into school that day, all I smelled was vinegar permeating the air, and I was like, well, apparently it worked. And I remember thinking to myself in that moment, I was like, okay, you're going to want to tell everybody you did this. Don't brag. Don't say anything. If you say anything then you're going to get in trouble, but no one knows you did this. Nobody knows you did this, so don't say anything. And so people were like, you did this. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. They're like, you did this. And, and, and I thought to myself, I was like, all right, I'm kind of pleased that my reputation is that I'm a little bit crazy enough that people would think that I did it. But I, even my closest friends, they're like, you did this. This had to be you. Your locker's right next to them. You did this. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I even had an English teacher who was in charge of that hallway come up to me. And he's like, do you know anything about this? I was like, it's a shame that that happened. That is a shame. And if I find out who did this, I will let you know. And I never let him know, so I lied. It was a bold-faced lie. But the point being, I remember at the time I was like, you know how when you're younger you try and carve out some sort of a reputation and you almost don't even care what it is? You just want to be known for something? I remember at that point of my life I was like, I just want to be known for something. Well, thankfully I outgrew that mostly Mostly, all right? One of you has a surprise when you open up your car after church. <laughs> but it wasn't me. Plausible di- deniability, right? But during Paul's ministry, there were people that thought he was crazy. Legitimately, there were people that thought he was out of his mind. And that was something that would oftentimes be said. There were also people that looked at Christians during that generation. And in general, they were like, Christians, oh yeah, those people are crazy. Like, they're crazy. But in Paul's case, people thought he was out of his mind and a bit fanatical. In fact, when you look at what is said in Acts chapter 26, verses 24 and 25, you have an occurrence happening here where the Apostle Paul is before government officials here, and it says, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. So what do the government officials think of Paul in that generation? They're like, you're out of your mind. Like, you're crazy. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And you know, the interesting thing is that the message of the gospel to many people sounds like foolishness. It's really only as the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and your, your heart to understand it that anyone would look at it and say, yeah, this makes sense. As Paul was preaching the gospel in his generation, he was obviously intensely passionate about making the gospel known, and whenever the Lord would give him an open door to proclaim it, he would go wherever the Lord gave him that opportunity to do so, and he would proclaim it. He was so thankful for what the Lord had done in his life, he was so thankful for the fact that Christ forgave his sin and redeemed him. And he wanted that good news, he wanted that divine gift to be shared with as many people as possible, even those who thought he was crazy, but frequently when he would preach these words, when he would preach the gospel, people would just say, that guy's nuts, that guy's nuts, and they would ignore what he had to say. And I look at that and I think to myself, there's a contemporary application of that very same thing, even when you and I think about living a persuasive life in the midst of the generation that we are in, or sharing the gospel with those who may not know it, I actually, you know, wonder sometimes, you know, what keeps us from openly sharing the message of salvation with other people? You know, whether you're a teenager, or whether you're in your young adult years, or whether you're a senior, or whatever season of life you might be in, what oftentimes keeps us from openly sharing the message of the gospel with other people? Isn't it most often a fear of what other people might think we look like as we're doing so? That's in in most cases. Isn't that what typically keeps us from speaking up about the message of salvation that we've been graced to understand? You know, when you look at what's going on in this world, there are some Christians right now who, in this world, are being genuinely and intensely persecuted. I have a friend. Who presently, right now, his name's Danny. Uh, his last name is Davis. So you could pray for him and his his missionary ministry is in Uganda, and uh, he just shared a prayer request for another pastor friend of his in Uganda, who was attacked for no reason. It just happened just the other week, and uh, this pastor was attacked and he was he was in the hospital and he was getting uh, treatment. And I just found out two days ago that this man died. The the pastor actually died. Danny's friend died. And he he shared that on Facebook just the other day and just asked that we'd be praying for people and pray for him as well because he's a bit discouraged that his friend was attacked in Uganda for proclaiming the message of the gospel. And so when you look at this, like some Christians in this world are presently, right now, genuinely and intensely being persecuted, but where we're at, it's probably worth asking, are we being beaten and put in prison for our faith? Is that typically happening? Might be able to find an example here or there. But in general, is it happening? Like, is it any secret right now that I'm preaching the gospel? Is there anything hidden about this? Aren't we streaming this on Facebook? You know, aren't we streaming this online? Doesn't this go up on YouTube later today? Podcast tomorrow? There's no secret about what's being preached here from my lips and in the in, you know in our context in our culture I don't worry each Sunday when I get up to preach that I might get thrown in jail for what I'm going to say yeah when I get really good at preaching I'll get one in there that something'll get me in trouble somewhere along the way but the point being some Christians in this world are genuinely being persecuted for their faith but in our context are we being fired for our jobs from our jobs because we're believers in Christ it happens sometimes but on average does it happen not usually not in our context is there a risk of us being executed because we bear the name of Christ? Some, but in our context, not, not as much as other places. The worst thing that tends to happen where we live is someone might look at us cross-eyed and say, you're crazy, or you're a little bit fanatical, or you're old-fashioned, or you're behind the times, or they might slander you because they think that, that your uh, values don't line up with current cultural values. But for the most part, that's what we deal with. So for the most part, we're actually so fearful of being called crazy that that's enough to shut us up. That's enough to keep us quiet. That's enough to keep us from actually sharing openly that we believe in Jesus Christ. That's all it takes sometimes, just the fear of being thought of as crazy. Well, when you look at the Apostle Paul's context, he was not so worried about outward appearances. He wasn't so worried about what people might say. He was more concerned that people have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel because it would change their life presently and give them hope for all eternity. But one of the dominant driving forces in our lives and in the lives of most people that we know is the desire to be esteemed by others. Typically, that's what we want, right? I think at times we become overly concerned with just in general outward appearances. You know, we we worry about that. How are people going to see me? How do I look in any given moment? How am I perceived? And I think we're less concerned with what's taking place in our own hearts and in the hearts of others as well. But yet the Lord wants to change hearts. The Lord wants people to hear the gospel. The Lord wants people to trust in Christ and follow His teaching but again, we get so caught up in things like outward appearances. This was kind of comical, but even just yesterday, I noticed this between a, a friend of mine. I, I had posted, like I said, some pictures from that conference that I had just attended. And uh, one of my friends was sitting in the front row, so his head is in almost every picture that I took. You could see him right in the front. And he said, oh, man, too many headshots there in, the, in, in, in your post. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, if you didn't sit in the front row, you wouldn't be in every picture. And he's like, no, but I'm just annoyed you could see my bald spot. He's like, you see my bald spot in every one of your pictures. And he, he, said, uh, he said, you should have Photoshopped that. We need someone to Photoshop that before you post that up on Facebook, hide my bald spot. And I was like, I got you. And so I reposted the picture six different times, one with him wearing a sombrero, one with, like, I edited it all up. He's got a chef's hat and another one, a graduation cap. I don't think he's seen it yet. By the way, this friend that I'm referring to, it's a pastor that mentored me and officiated for my wedding, and he's retiring now. I don't know if he's going to find it funny when he sees that later today, but I took the risk. Why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because even just in our day-to-day life, even among friends, what are we concerned with? Our outward appearance, right? Whether or not, you know, we show up in a picture and our smile looks exactly right, or whether or not you can see our bald spot, or whether or not we... It's like, oh, I forgot to suck in before that picture, right? It's like, oh, what, what am I doing? So much of life is spent looking at the outward appearance, but what did the Apostle Paul say? He said, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances And not about what is in the heart. And what does the Lord desire to do for you and me? And for anyone who will trust in Him, He wants to change the heart. Now that's going to become visible, that change is going to become visible in our outward actions and demonstration of, of faith. But the Lord's concerned with changing the heart. And that's something that the Apostle Paul encourages us to be focused on as well so that we don't spend our life overly consumed with outward appearances. There's one other thing that he brings up in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, and you see this in verses 14 and 15, and when he thinks about our lives being a, making a persuasive case for what it means to follow Jesus Christ, he says, essentially, if you want to be really persuasive, as you interact with others, if you want your life to be really persuasive about what it means to follow Christ, understand that a persuasive life is a life that's controlled by Christ's love. He says it this way in verse 14 and then 15. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. So here he's saying the love of Christ controls us, and then he lists all these things that Jesus has done on our behalf. By the way, what's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for you? Just think about that statement for a second. What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? When Daniel and I were driving back from that conference, we were on 95 North coming back here through Philly and then back into town, and there's lots of billboards there. You've seen it a million times. And most of them you just ignore because these are all things that you've seen a million times. But there was one billboard that caught our attention, and it was something I had never seen before. It was just a a man's face and uh, just a very brief message where he said, I need a kidney. Is there any chance you'd be willing to help? And then a very easy-to-remember web address encouraging if someone was willing to donate a kidney to then follow up with him via that web address. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting and creative use for a billboard, and it made me think to myself, I was like, well, you know, that guy obviously spent thousands and thousands of dollars for that billboard to go up, and I wonder if it will work. I wonder if that will inspire somebody to demonstrate that kind of compassion to him and donate a kidney. Now, when you think about the nicest thing that's ever been done for us, certainly if someone does that for that man, That'll be a very nice thing. Well, what's the nicest thing that's ever been done for us? We have the Apostle Paul answering that in 2 Corinthians 5, when you look at verses 14 and 15 that we just read together. He tells us that Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus took on flesh, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross because of my sin and your sin. He did that for you and for me. Then he rose from the grave and defeated death. And he lives forever, and he looks at you and me, and he says, this victory that I've secured can become your victory, too, if you trust in me. So he gives us the opportunity to trust in him and receive that gift of eternal life. He wants to offer us a second chance. He wants to offer us a new beginning. He wants wants to offer us a life that doesn't have to be lived selfishly, like many of us can confess that we once lived, but rather a life that can be consumed with honoring Christ and being a benefit toward other people. And here we're told that the calling on your life and my life or, or the way that we could say thank you for what Jesus has done for us, this kindness, this compassion that he's shown us in taking our sin upon himself so that we could live forgiven forever, we're told that the calling on our life in response is that we would live for him who died on our behalf, that we would live for him who was raised to defeat sin and Satan, that we would just simply live for him. Now, selfishness is the mindset of this world, but it should never be the mindset of those of us who've been blessed with the gift of new life in Jesus Christ. As Jesus was selfless toward us, that should be our mindset and attitude toward him and toward one another. And I think once our hearts and our minds truly grab hold of what Jesus has done on our behalf, that produces a change. We think differently. We value things differently. We live differently. What Jesus has done is he's taken selfish, dead people like we were, and he made us selfless people who are alive forevermore in him. And so this is what Paul was preaching in the generation in which he lived. This is what we have the opportunity to share as well. And I think that as we think about what Christ has done for us, the kindness that he's demonstrated to us, I think his kindness compels us. I think his kindness motivates us. We're no longer controlled by the, the perspective or the preferences of our old nature. We're now controlled by the love of Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. We're controlled by the love of Christ. We're no longer controlled by anger. No longer controlled by the need to be right. Do you ever go through seasons where you just needed to be the one who was right? You don't have to confess that out loud to me, especially if you're in one of those seasons right now. Um, Do you ever feel controlled by politics or social philosophies? Do you ever feel controlled by fear? Do you ever feel just controlled by the perspectives of this world? Well, here Paul is saying, look, Christ's love, if you are in Christ, Christ's love should be the driving force of your life. It's going to impact the way you interact with other people and share life together. It's going to impact the way you speak to your spouse or your children. It's going to impact the thoughts that you allow to permeate your mind. It's going to impact the what if scenarios that you allow to, to just take root in your mind for any length of time, things that used to produce fear. You could look at these things and say, all right, well, the what if scenario is this God's in control. If the love of Christ is compelling us, that's going to impact the negative self-talk that used to impact our sense of identity and sense of worth because we're going to now realize who we are in Christ and that the, the perspective of this world doesn't need to be the dominant perspective in our mind any longer. I don't have to look at myself the way that I once did. You don't have to look at yourself the way that you once did. You're a new creation in Christ. and These things used to be controlled by the world's agenda. And You know what the world's agenda actually produces? It's a lot of D's, right? Death, disease, discouragement, despair. That's what the world's agenda actually produces. But now we're controlled by Christ's love. And we have a hope that's not anchored in our circumstances. It's anchored in Him. And that's a big difference. Let me say this as we finish up this morning. I'm making the assumption, and I think it's a fair assumption... That if you have joyfully received the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, if you've experienced what it's actually like to live a new life where he changes your mind, changes your heart, and gives you a new life in him, you have that hope. I, I feel pretty confident that if that hope is something you take seriously, that's something that you desire others in your life experience as well. It means you're probably praying for certain people in your life that they would experience that hope, it means you're probably giving some thought to how you interact with your friends, neighbors, coworkers, extended family, because you want them to experience that hope. And you think about that, and you think, how can I persuade somebody to actually experience the hope and the joy that I have in Christ? How can I persuade somebody to actually place their faith in Jesus like he has compelled me to do so? Well, let me say two things about that. First of all, I think that it takes the Lord changing a person's heart for them to actually receive the gift of salvation. So begin praying for whomever is in your life that you would like to see truly become anchored in Christ as well. The second thing I'll say is this. You can be a tool in that persuasion that the Lord uses to help someone who's lacking hope to find hope. And he can make a very persuasive case through the testimony of your life. There are people that have seen you in all seasons of life, and they have watched the change that he's brought into your life. I mentioned Facebook earlier. They need to start compensating me for this endorsement, I think. Um, But I'll say this as we finish up. Do you ever get a notification where it says, hey, would you like to look back at your memories for this week, you know, or this day throughout the years, and if you've been on there any length of time, you're like, yeah, I I think I would like to look back at my memories, and so I checked back those things and came across something the week before last that was a message I received from one of my friends in high school who knew me when I was trying to be just a little too crazy, and uh, it was a message he sent to me when our church started broadcasting our uh, sermons online, especially during the shutdowns that happened several years ago. And he sent this publicly on Facebook, so it showed up in the feed there. And his comment was, you know, I, I, uh, we've been tuning into your worship service with your church. We've been tuning in every week. And he said, this is how I reasoned it in my mind. John is someone I actually watched go through the transformation that Christ can actually produce in someone's life. He's like, I I knew you before, and I've known you since, so I actually know that what you're saying from that pulpit is something you genuinely mean, because I watched you live it out when you had no reason to worry about me as your audience. So he watched the change that the Lord facilitated in my life, and the Lord used that to make a very persuasive case in his And the only reason he was willing to tune in to our live stream or listen to this is because he knew that it was coming from a mouth that meant it. And I say that to each of us because there are people in your life who will never listen to me because they don't know me from anybody. To them, I'm just a stereotype. You know, I'm just another pastor who, you know, probably fits into whatever stereotypes they think pastors fit in. So they don't know me from anybody, but they know you. They've watched you through all the different seasons of your life. They knew you as a kid. They knew you as a young adult. They, knew you, they know you at the season you're at right now. They've seen you go through hard stuff. They've seen you go through joyful moments. And they know beyond a shadow of a doubt because they've observed your life, that your faith in Christ is genuine, that you actually mean it because they watched your life up close. They didn't just see you on a live stream. They watched you up close. That is a very persuasive tool in the hand of God. And I hope that you'll, this is what I'd encourage us to do. Just submit yourself over to the Lord and say, Lord, use me however you choose to use me. And if you give me the words or opportunity to speak, help me to just speak up, that I might encourage somebody who maybe in the moment they'll call me crazy, but maybe somewhere down the line they'll say, you know what, that wasn't so crazy. It was just different different from the hopeless state that I was in before I heard or responded to the truth of the gospel. And so I'd encourage you to allow the Lord to use you that way. Because in his sovereignty and how he arranges relationships, there are some people who won't listen to a single other person on this planet but you. You are God's messenger to certain people that he's placed in your life. And by his grace, I want to pray that that the Lord would use each of us to make a persuasive case to the people and to the lives that we have the opportunity to interact with, with regularity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and, and for your goodness and for the fact that you persuaded us to know you and to love you and to trust in you. These are things that wouldn't have made sense to us. These are things that wouldn't we wouldn't have even valued at an earlier season of life, but now you've enabled us to actually see the value in these things. We, we recognize what your Son, Jesus Christ, came to this earth to do on our behalf, and we acknowledge your great power and your sovereignty, and so we revere you. We respect you. We have that holy and righteous fear that you desire that we have so that our lives conform to what it means to actually be a follower of yours, Father, we're so grateful for the work that your son has done for us. We're so grateful for the fact that he took our sin upon himself so that through faith in him, we could be forgiven of our sin. But Lord, we also know in our day-to-day lives, a whole bunch of people who are going through life shackled and burdened by all sorts of things that weigh their minds and their hearts down, and they don't know what to do with it. They think that they have to go through life carrying their past mistakes and their past errors, and so they just let it burden their hearts, and they just go through life thinking there's no hope or no other solution. But Lord, we pray that as we've received the forgiveness and new life that you've offered, that you would testify to, the, to those that you've placed in our lives, that you testify through our lifestyle, through our example, through our, just our personal living, and through the words that we speak, what it means to be transformed through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, as your Spirit transforms us. Lord, we pray that that would make a persuasive and compelling case to those who as of yet do not know you so that they too would come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would experience new life through him. Thank you, Lord, for the example that you give to us from the lives of people like the Apostle Paul, who during his life was willing to stand up and and boldly proclaim the message of the gospel, even though sometimes that got him in trouble with governmental authorities and other esteemed people in the culture. And then others looked at him and thought, he's just crazy. Thank you for bringing Paul from someone who overly concerned himself with his reputation to becoming someone who said, you know what, I don't care if people think I'm crazy. I'm going to tell them the truth, and I'm going to let things fall where they fall. But I'm going to speak the truth no matter what people say of me. It's not about me. It's about you. So, Lord, we pray that that would be the mindset that we would adopt as well, and we pray that we would be inspired by his example, that that would be persuasive to us so that we would be useful tools in your hand to be persuasive toward others. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes and our hearts to be able to see the truth of your gospel. We pray right now, Lord, for our family and our friends, our co-workers and our neighbors, who as of yet do not know you. We pray that you'd make a compelling case through our lips and through our lives. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us the courage and the inspiration to tell others who you are and what you've done on our behalf. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for these reminders from your word today. Speak to us, we pray, and speak through us, we ask, through your power. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.